Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. As I record this, the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak is poised to become a pandemic. Each day brings news of new cases in new places around the world. So far, COVID-19 has mostly impacted countries with decently functioning healthcare systems. However, a great worry that has been repeatedly expressed by experts and from the World Health Organization is what happens should we see clusters of cases where there is no good health system. This includes poorer countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, and also populations in the midst of some humanitarian crisis. To better understand the potential impact of this coronavirus outbreak on vulnerable populations around the world, including on refugees and displaced people, and those impacted by conflict and humanitarian crises, I speak with Dr. Paul B. Spiegel. He is the director of the Center for Humanitarian Health at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he is also a professor. As it happens, Paul B. Spiegel was in the midst of a project to model scenarios around COVID-19 and the Rohingya refugee population in a region of Bangladesh called Cox's Bazaar. So we do spend a good bit of time talking about that particular humanitarian crisis, while also discussing the broader implications of COVID-19 spreading to places already in the midst of a crisis. So a big thank you to the listeners who have suggested this topic. I knew I want to cover some aspect of the COVID-19 situation that was not getting the attention it deserved. And I put a call out on Twitter and several of you recommended that I explore the impact of COVID-19 on refugees and other humanitarian crises and also suggested that I get in touch with Paul Spiegel, who turned out to be the ideal interlocutor. So thank you. If you are new to the show, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can peruse our robust archive of conversations about topical issues and global affairs. And you can also use the contact button to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And for premium subscribers, the bonus episode I'm posting this week is my conversation with Mark Kennedy Shriver. He is the head of the Save the Children Action Network, and as his name suggests, a scion of the Kennedy and Shriver clans. His father, Sergeant Shriver, founded the Peace Corps, and his mother, Eunice Kennedy, helped start the Special Olympics. And in our conversation, he discusses how his family's legacy of service and public interest work has guided his own life and career. To access that bonus episode and other bonus episodes, you can become a premium subscriber. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches or clicking the links in the description field of this episode. Premium subscribers also get access to my daily global humanitarian news clip service called Dawn's Digest. This is a daily email that 
people in the humanitarian community and the global development community subscribe to to start their day. It covers less covered news from around the world, but news that's relevant to people who kind of care and follow global stories that don't often make headlines. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And if you are interested in learning more about this degree, you can also just send me an email and I'll point you in the right direction. All right, now here is my conversation with Dr. Paul Spiegel, Director of the Center for Humanitarian Health at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, I mean, I'm concerned, as probably everyone is worldwide now, I think it's, it's likely inevitable that a, a pandemic will, will occur. Although I think a lot of people, understandably, as I am, are hesitant to, to say 100%, but things are, are moving very quickly. And we're always concerned about refugees. Um, and I would say refugees is often a broad term, depending on how one wants to use it. But refugees, internally displaced persons, people that have been forcibly displaced and are often more vulnerable than host communities, um, and who oft, often are a second thought compared to uh, governments that are dealing with their their own nationals and their or their own nationals that have not been displaced, like internally displaced persons. Uh, and do we know anything as of now about sort of in terms of the trajectory of the spread of COVID nineteen that particularly concerns you in terms of any kind of vulnerable population, say in the Middle East? Um, interesting. You moved to the to the Middle East, but one of my one of the big concerns I think we have is in Asia, and it. Um, if COVID-19 gets into some of the, the uh, Rohingya camps in, in Bangladesh, for example, um, it would be very, 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 very bad for a variety of reasons, um, which I could get to. In, in the Middle East, um, the issue is that it, other than, let's say, the Palestinian camps, which are not really camps, they're cities, there aren't that many camps in the Middle East. There are some in Jordan, uh, Azraq, and Zatri, but... In the Middle East, for the most part, the population is dispersed amongst the uh, amongst other populations. So in Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, of course, there are camps, but the large majority are, are outside of camps. Um, however, that's equally concerning because of the access to health care, again, that these refugees would have compared to many of the national populations. I think, for Although, example, in Lebanon, so like almost one in five people at one point was a Syrian refugee in Lebanon. Uh, these aren't people living necessarily in camps, but among the population. But you're saying that their access to health care is reduced or limited compared to the Syrian uh, Lebanese nationals. 
Yes, in general. I mean, I think it's always important to recognize that um, that n- their nationals and refugees are not. Um, there's just not one group in terms of socioeconomic um, socioeconomic status. So the nationals and the refugees, um, there are always groups that are more vulnerable than others, and so there's a push now, uh, and rightly so, in terms of equity that. Um, in Lebanon, for example, a, a country I know well, and, and some would say it's even one in four as opposed to one in five, and I've even heard one in three. But certainly there's, a, there's let's say, 20, 30 percent of the population may be Syrian refugees. Um, it is extremely difficult for, you know, in Lebanon where it's a privatized uh, society, it's a, sorry, it's a privatized healthcare system. And it's, it's difficult to have access. And over time, the refugees, the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, um, have used up all their assets. They do try to do some work, but uh, the poverty level is much higher amongst refugees than uh, the Lebanese. But again, just a quick caveat is that the there are many vulnerable Lebanese as well who we should equally be concerned about. And I think if we concentrate in a in terms of a coronavirus or any epidemic or in healthcare, we really need to think about those that are most vulnerable and not necessarily the status of a person. So you initially uh, referenced the Rohingya refugee population in, in Cox's Bazar in, in Bangladesh, which which is what, about like 700,000, 600,000 at this point? Depending on which numbers as always, but yes. I, like, What does the health infrastructure in a place like that look like? Um, it is, it, it's a bit ramshackle, but there are amazingly, you know, there actually have, there have been outbreaks in those camps, but compared to at the beginning when you had so many people coming in, in a poor state and um, everything was overwhelmed in terms of shelter, in terms of the healthcare and water and sanitation. Uh, amazingly, the, the, uh, mortality rates have not been hugely elevated uh, compared to what we would have expected, which means that the the international community and the government of Bangladesh really have stepped up. Um, that being said, there have been outbreaks, including diphtheria. And if there was a significant stressor, such as COVID-19, uh, in, a, in a place like that, which is, it's, it's not a camp, but, uh, you know, uh, many camps, um, it would overwhelm the the it would overwhelm not just the population but the the amount of um, the the healthcare workers themselves and and you're going to need everything from you're going to need everything from basic services from people that are are a fever and cough to significantly as you get older and and you have more and more um, serious side effects you're going to need much more serious care that these camps would not be able to offer. Yeah, I mean, so 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 like. At this point, as you said, it, it seems somewhat likely, I mean, that this could be a pandemic. Um, it's not out of the realm of plausibility that, you know, this spreads to a place like like uh, Cox's Bazaar. I, I guess, like, what scenarios do you, can you potentially envision for what, what that might look like? Yeah, we've been, um, actually, at, at Hopkins, we do have a group that's been uh, a modeling group, and it's been working of modeling uh COVID-19 in, in some parts of China, helping in Uganda, Zambia, and we've also um, just finalized, let's say, different scenarios in the camps in Bangladesh. And um, 
it some of the scenarios it it will depend because you what's interesting is the demographics in in Cox's Bazaar of course you have a, a lot of children and younger people which are not as thank goodness severely affected as older people with um, with chronic diseases so it, you have to look at the demographic profile which is um, perhaps in Cox's Bazaar favor because it's such a young young population. But what's not in favor, of course, is the uh, the ability for diseases, particularly respiratory tract infections or respiratory infections, to transmit um, so in such a highly dense population, uh, many of whom are, are undernourished, it will easily be transmitted. And so, what would ha- some of the scenarios in, in a place like that is that they would be overwhelmed. Uh, there would need to be a significant amount of referrals to the various district hospitals in, in Cox's Bazaar. But the problem is, and some of those hospitals have capacity, but then the problem is um, you are going to have, it's not going to be a, an outbreak just amongst the refugees. It's going to be amongst the nationals as well. And it's going to be, <coughs> excuse me, those district hospitals in terms of beds, in terms of where to put people who are suspected and have to be quarantined, it's going to be overwhelmed. And um, how a government is going to decide what do we deal with, or how do we deal with refugees, how do we deal with our nationals, uh, will be very, very difficult. Did your modeling scenario identify any potential fatality figures? No, not yet. We're, we've not moved in that direction yet. What we have moved in uh, is to look at because we're trying to look in terms of preparedness. And so what we're trying to look at is in different uh, scenarios, how many uh, healthcare workers will you need? What sort of equipment will you need? And how many beds will you need? Um, and I'm not able to, just again, off the author, I can't share anything that with you yet because we, we literally just finished it two nights ago. I need to go over it and then I want to share it with my colleagues in uh, UNHCR and WHO there, but I don't, I haven't gone into um, horrible detail other than it's very clear that there are not, there would not be enough healthcare workers and beds uh, currently to be able to deal with something like that. And and that's not going to be unique just to there, frankly, if it's going to, it's going to be, we saw how difficult it's been in China. It's going to be difficult uh, in many settings, including in many high well, I'm I'm wondering, I mean, that kind of leads me into my next set of questions, which is around, you know, what kind of capacity exists right now in the humanitarian system? And, you know, by that, I mean the constellation of NGOs and UN agencies and, and government agencies, you know, to deal with an outbreak in a crisis situation, whether it's in, you know, say, you know, uh, Bangladesh or, or elsewhere in the world. Yeah. What's interesting is that um, this sort of, so not all outbreaks are the same. And so this sort of outbreak in terms of prevention, um, in terms of what is required, is very different uh, than an Ebola outbreak, for example. So in, and I was talking to some of my my friends and colleagues at WHO, but in the Ebola outbreak in DRC and others, you actually have the NGOs and others going and building uh, big uh, Ebola treatment units and um, we're here for the, for the most part, you're going to rely on existing health systems and you're going to be building up those health systems. Um, and so, well, NGOs and you're going to have to have a massive prevention effort in terms of trying to mitigate the spread of the disease, which is going to be extremely difficult in 
places like Cox's Bazaar and the camps there compared to uh, other areas that are, are, have less density. And then there's going to be a need to dramatically increase the referrals to, or let's say the referral system to those hospitals in Cox's Bazaar, which are going to need uh, more room, more beds, more people to be able to address um, the amount of people that are going to be very, very sick with, with complications that are need to, to need more serious medical care. So it's interesting that you brought up Ebola because it did seem, at least to me at the time, that the you know humanitarian system really sort of did kick into gear and did demonstrate a degree of you know flexibility and versatility in its ability to to deal with that. Um, I'm just wondering, as you said, if if that kind of versatility is exists today in terms of dealing with COVID nineteen. We've been thinking this through in terms of. Um, as I said, we can't just say all, all epidemics are the same. And so Ebola, where you're trying to contain it in an area and it's not exploding around the world um, at the same time, it's much easier to have that classic humanitarian, it's still complicated, but to have a classic humanitarian response and not just with the clusters, but also with the, um, with the uh, emergency medical teams and um, really moving and setting up, uh, setting up hospitals and, and ETUs to be able to treatment units to really respond. This is going to be very different for a couple of reasons, because number one, um, it's a lot of people are going to be infected and, and thank goodness the majority are not going to have symptoms or they're going to be very light. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of very basic, uh, basic prevention, wash your hands, this sort of thing where it, and it needs to be the second thing that makes it unique is that it's pervasive. And so it's not as if, um, you're going to have these NGOs and their capacities to move all over the world when you've got, uh, it's going to be in so many different places. And um, there, that's number one. Number two is the protective equipment is already going to be, because of the immensity and the, the pandemicity of this, if, this, if we can use that word, um, there's just not going to be enough pr- uh, materials, masks, particularly for the healthcare workers. And for those that are sick, so there's probably not going to be enough soap, enough uh, enough uh, water to wash hands consistently, masks, gloves. And I would anticipate that the refugee camps, if you're in a country uh, that you have, you're worried about your own nationals, that the refugee camps may not be prioritized. And that I think speaks to another worry I have about the broader politics of this, you know, as opposed to say the Ebola outbreak where you did see, you know, kind of a global outpouring of support for the affected countries because this is, as you said, so pervasive. Um, I, I can't imagine that governments will be as willing to say fund a global response to places that can't, um, you know, that don't have the capacity to deal with it themselves. I mean, I, I just, before we talked, looked at the status of that most recent emergency appeal from the World Health Organization for something like $65.1 million. And, and they've received, you know, about 1.2 million of that so far. And, and this is to help countries, um, that would be deeply affected, places in Sub-Saharan Africa that don't have an, the capacity to deal with it on their own um, to build up their preparedness. Um, but it just, it's hard for me at least now to imagine that the funding is going to be there for those countries to, you know, to, to you know, build the capacity that they need. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it's, and it, I think it's rather more if, to be crude and it's, it's self-interest and some of this may be natural, but as a government, you're first and foremost responsible for your own citizens and 
there's not enough protective equipment uh, that we've already spoken of. And then um, even in terms of prevention, you're going to be really now maximizing your own health systems to try to deal with your own population. So I think it's going to, yes, it's going to be very, very problematic. And so far, for the most part, it's been uh, COVID has infected countries where they have at least functioning health systems. I think when we get, and, and there are functioning health systems in Cox's Bazaar and the camps, but not like obviously in China. And then when you move to places like South Sudan or other areas, it's going to be extremely difficult. And I, as you said, I don't think you're suddenly going to see when you have an outbreak so large in so many different places, it's not as if the Médecins Sans Frontières of the world are going to be able to move everywhere and respond in the same way as in Ebola. It's a very different story. Um, is there an aspect to this issue, to the intersection of COVID-19, to you know, humanitarian crises and vulnerable populations that you think is, is you know, particularly worth emphasizing to the audience? I would say number one is that these these populations are particularly vulnerable. And so any sort of outbreak that you would have, such as COVID-19, um, after you take into account the demographics of perhaps a younger population, but they will be affected and uh, they will be affected in a much more severe way because they already have more underlying illness than other groups and they don't have the same um, social networks and the same money to be able to actually do, buy basic ways to treat your, to prevent such as water, soap, uh, cleansing uh, materials, and for those that are sick, uh, masks. So I think we're, they're going to sadly suffer disproportionately to others. Uh, and then that, the next thing is, I think, to emphasize is what you were just talking about. Unlike when there's a massive outbreak in a refugee setting or in a nearby setting, and you can send in a lot of the humanitarian NGOs in the UN to deal with that, when you have something so large and so severe, um, there will not be the capacity to deal with this. So I worry, despite there's clearly going to be an increase in surveillance, and, and I've seen already from UNHCR and, and the various UN agencies working in these areas in refugee settings that they're increasing their surveillance, and they're going to try to increase and get funding for this. But um, in terms of preparation, I think it's going to be, a, sadly, a very, very big challenge. Uh, and finally, in the coming days and weeks, um, or even months, what are you looking out for? What will suggest to you one way or another how this outbreak may evolve, in, uh, particularly in terms of how it might impact you know, refugee and, and other vulnerable populations? I think we need to, we're going to need to watch how the transmission is changing now. And when, when, for the most part, everyone was watching um, and seeing um, how the disease was moving to other countries, but if it was mostly from uh, someone who had been to China, which was the epicenter, and you were able to control that, then um, you could hopefully try to stop the spread. But as we're seeing in, let's say, Italy right now and in Iran, you're seeing uh, COVID-19 getting into those countries and then having its own response chain that is not related to the original person that was uh, infected elsewhere, um, it's going to move. So we're going to see it hopping and moving towards more and more countries. Um, and that's, I, 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 that's, I would say, what we need to, we need to look at where are, would be the most vulnerable refugee populations. And it would be certainly in areas 
that are very poor, where you have a lot of acute malnutrition or a lot of other diseases that refugees are affected by, whether they have a huge uh, increase in density of, of the population. So definitely camps and areas where they are not as spread out. The more spread out refugees are in populations, um, I would say the 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 better in terms of they will be mixed in with the national populations and everyone can try to deal with it in a similar way and treat everyone similarly. But if they're caught into camps and then you have a massive outbreak, um, it would be very worrisome. And I, I would also maybe just end one of the concerns is that this is clearly not a refugee issue or a disease, but I worry that if, they, if it gets into the stigma and discrimination of getting into a refugee population, perhaps before it's in the national population, and refugees being blamed for, um, as they often are, as vectors of diseases when we've often found that that's not the case. So it could also have a, it could be some negative stigma and discriminations um, that inadvertently occur from this uh, outbreak. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Paul. This was very helpful. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for, uh, for speaking with me today. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Paul. That was very helpful and obviously very timely. Again, this is one of those stories that I think is becoming increasingly relevant in the coming weeks and months as this COVID-19 becomes a pandemic and spreads to vulnerable populations, particularly refugee populations. And I should say, um, when that study that he references regarding the Rohingya refugee population in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, gets published, I'll post it to the homepage. All right, see you next time. Thanks. Bye.